What am I supposed to do? And that's what we've been trying to explore a little bit by pulling some stuff out of the headlines and looking at the stuff that's going on in our world and saying, all right, what perspective does God, God give? And if, even if we're not entirely agreed upon what we should do, at least we can look and say, what does God say about this area? And how can I make that part of who I am? And that's what we're going to do again one more time today. And I want to invite you, if you have a Bible, to look at the very front of your Bible or access to one in Genesis. We're going to start in Genesis 1. I'm going to take you to some passages in Genesis. And then we'll take you to the New Testament too. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. When we talk about uh, the thing that, that has been, is constantly our new, in our news, and it's been in our news again this week, and that is that this repeated pattern, increasingly brash, and common and even a, a casual occurrences of the taking of human life. I mean, it happens. I, I got a text from my daughter who's now living in New York City before I'd even heard and said, I just want you to know I wasn't near Chelsea today where a bomb had gone off and she had been there a day or two before and it gets me going thinking, what a... That's not just stuff that's happened out there. That's affecting people I know. That's the threat of what can happen in our schools or in our workplaces or in our shopping centers. Just this week, then, you saw about the things that have happened again, right? You saw that that attempt in Washington. Then, in in just a shopping mall in the state of Washington, five people are dead in Burlington, Washington. They've just captured the guy who did it. And you have occurrence after occurrence of police shooting individuals, causing uproars. Is it justified? Is it not justified? What what do we do with that? It happened in Tulsa this week. It happened in Charlotte this week. It resulted in riots in Charlotte where more people's lives are put in peril and lost. It gives rise to statements that are made. And you're not going to hear me make political statements in here. But you just know what's true. So so we've we've got... mantras that come out like black lives matter which raises then counter thoughts for people to say wait it's all lives matter there's also the counterpart that says no blue lives police lives matter and inevitably that degrades into people not even coping with it maybe trying to find humor trying to uh, whatever the motives are and now you can get t-shirts that say blank lives matter there's ones that say white lives matter there's ones that say drunk lives matter zombie lives matter Deplorable lives matter. They've all, you can buy those. I'm, I'm not here to diminish or elevate any of those causes. What it, it's got our attention, doesn't it? And then you hear about the city of Chicago. I lived near Chicago for a while. And there were headlines that came out in January through March. The statements started coming out. The murders in the nation's lo- third largest city are up 72%. Shoot, shootings have surged more than 88% in the first three months. Then July comes out. It says last month, after July, was the deadliest July in Chicago in a decade. 65 homicides recorded, 360 more shootings. And in August, it's like, well, that was nothing because August ended as the deadliest summer on record. 90th murder in August happened. In September, Chicago hit 500 homicides before the end of the summer. The year before, there were 480 in the entire year. And now as of September 23rd, this Friday, this past Friday, there have been 524 homicides just in the city of Chicago on pace for 700 homicides for the year. And everybody goes, what are we supposed to do with that? What, 
it, it, do you not notice we're becoming completely desensitized? Are you? I am. You get on the news and it's just another one. We forget about San Bernardino because that was ages ago. Orlando, that was ages ago. We've been there 12 since then. Now, I want, to under, I want you to understand that I, I am not here to say today, I'm not here to make a statement. First of all, we're not here to offer some quick fix to this. Forgive me, but I honestly believe that the ultimate fix for this is a personal encounter with jesus christ you can call me simplistic if you want you can call me spiritualizing if you want i think the world desperately needs to know jesus christ okay i'm just going to say that but i'm not here to say oh let's do these 12 things and we'll get things fixed i'm not here to make a statement about the second amendment we're not here to assess the motives or the justifications oh but we're what we're noticing i mean so that just happened is that there's this underlying revocation of the value of human life there's a devaluing of it that has happened. And so we're simply asking, okay, what do we make of it? What, what do we do with it? How do we react to it? How can we get some perspective on it? And somewhere in the mix that's happened in our culture, and perhaps it's seeping into our own individual minds and lives too, it has to do with this, the value of something that you walked in with one of today. You walked in with a human life. You are a human life. For just a few minutes, let's revisit exactly what that means as best we can. And it starts in the book of Genesis with the creation of all the the material universe and world. And there's a phrase that if you've been around church at all, or even if you haven't, you've probably heard reference to this. It's in Genesis chapter 1. That, that God has created, in six days he has created all the cosmos and all, the, all the, the material universe as we know it. And then he gets to the end. And verse 26 it says, Then God said, let's make man. He uses this phrase, in our image, in our likeness. It's a different phrase that got used for anything else God did. And he says, and let him rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the livestock, over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In the creation order, there's something that serves as the capstone of God's creation. He forms out of the dust of the earth something that's unique and different from everything else that exists in the entire universe. You're going to see how different this thing is in a minute. Because chapter 2 of Genesis goes back and it kind of tells the story again with giving some different distinct details about what was going on in that and how that happened. So if you look at Genesis chapter 2, you'll see the account is repeated. But I'm just going to, for the sake of time, just focus with you on on verse 7. When it says the Lord, Yahweh, God, formed the man from the dust of the ground and then he did something. And now, I, am, I believe this literally happened. I believe that the God of the universe did this with the clay he formed. I believe this is the start of mankind. And something unique happened. I mean, God has created life, hasn't he? You know that. The, there's already fish in the sea. There's birds. There's animals. He's created life. But then he does something different with this thing. Verse 7 continues. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, my translation says. And the man became something. He became a living being. 
there is really significance to this use of some phrases that the, the Hebrew Old Testament uses about the breath of God. There's something distinct there. Now, there are three actual words in Hebrew that get used describing the breath of God and the soul of man. And sometimes we see it as, as breath or, or when there's the, the word ruach in the, in the Hebrew, which is, is, gets translated breath or, or sometimes wind. Uh, neshama is a spear, is it's a spear. That's the word that gets used here. And then there's nefesh. And, the, and that is usually referred to as the soul. They're all related to each other. And the scholars tend to think they're often used interchangeably. They have to do with something coming from the being, the eternal being, God, that is an immaterial part that has an effect on the material universe and, and a person in particular. And one of the best analogies I heard about it, just in case you're interested, is, is this, that they said that the, the, the th- those three words are used kind of distinguished this way. These are Jewish scholars that say this. That the, that the soul, that, that whole element of what's internal to us is likened to the, the breath of air that a glass blower uses to inflate hot glass. Now listen to what they say. The first is the air as it is still in the glass blower's cheeks. This corresponds to the neshama, which is the word used here. There's breath that he is holding, getting ready to distribute. When the air leaves the glass blower's mouth, it flows down a tube and the tube connects the glass blower and his work. In the same sense, that's the word ruach in the Hebrew, which, it, which also is like the flow of it. It's the wind that sometimes is used. It's the ruach. And it's the connection between the physical and the spirit being. And then from the tube, the, the air enters into the glass, which represents the dust of the ground, the body. And then this is the word, tends to be used as the word nephesh which gives shape and purpose to our physical selves. And so that word nefesh is often defined as an animated, conscious, and living being. There is significance to this event that's just different from everything else in the universe. And this is why you're going to be glad you came today, because you're going to find out something or are reminded about something that's true of you. That there is something really, really, really special about you. And I'm not here, I'm not talking about the positive thinking, oh, be all you can be. I'm talking about as a human being, you are still, you, there's been an uninterrupted flow of this, this truth that continues to this day and you carried it in with you. Here's what happened. You became a being who, that is distinct from everything else in the universe because you coexist in two completely different realms. Human beings exist in the physical realm. They are material. They're flesh and they're blood. At the same time, human beings are spirit beings. They, they exist and their identity is spiritual. This happened when God took... God is a spirit. That's, scripture says that. God who has no body until he was incarnated in his son. God as a spirit did something. He formed a material world. He formed material... He gave life and pulsing activity even brain waves to some of the animals. But then he took this one thing, this lump, and he formed it, and he gave his own essence into it, his own image and likeness into it. There's something that's true about God as a spirit being. Now think about this, or angelic beings. God spoke them into existence. Angelic beings exist in the spiritual realm. They are spirit beings they sometimes when they've dealt with men taken on the form of men but they have never been material they are spiritual beings you've got spiritual beings and angels you've got 
physical living things like crops and dogs. And then God says, now watch this, you guys. And he takes one and he creates two essences functioning in the same space. Together, they're intended to be fused, intertwined forever. It is a completely new design. And God gets done and goes, huh? Is that good? And I believe that the whole universe goes, oh, oh, oh. You have been... You have been the object of study of the angelic world as part of the human race ever since this moment. Angels wonder about how God did in his whole redemption of this. And they're created to be servants of these beings. There is significance to that. And then God said, it's almost like, oh, oh, no, watch, watch, it can do stuff. And God puts it in the garden and says, now go do stuff that represents me. It gets to reflect character qualities of the spirit being while it's functioning in the physical realm. And he goes, oh, but that's nothing. Watch this. It can procreate itself. They're gonna, you're going to start to see more of these things. In fact, he commands for it to happen. Go into all the world and, and, and spread this so that it brings more glory to the creative wonder of the, of the Almighty. How good is that? Because of that, we are distinct from everything else. You've heard the phrase magnum opus. It's used a lot in art. The magnum opus, it's Latin, it actually means great work. And people talk about the magnum opus of certain people. It was, of all the great things that they've accomplished or all the great works they've produced, they look at one in particular and say, I believe that's their magnum opus. Michelangelo, the Sistine Chapel, is often called his magnum opus, his great work. Da Vinci's Mona Lisa. Hemingway wrote, the sun also rises, and they say that was his magnum opus. Boston wrote, more than a feeling. (laughs) You represent the magnum opus. We can wonder at the stars in the universe. We can wonder the grandeur of the Grand Canyon and the, and the cosmos and, the, and, and how the earth and sky and water and fire and all of it and just the wonder of nature. But when God points to his magnum opus, it's us. Acts 17.25 says, He himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. That combination came together there. What that means is there are implications of that from our maker. I mean, when he's got pictures of the th- stuff he made, it's us. If they're, on his, if they're on his mantle, you know what I'm saying. Dude. And so when God looks at us, he goes, okay, now this is worth paying attention to. This is worth treating with respect. And so God injects the reality of the sanctity of life. Okay, the life, the nefesh that we are. That, sanct, that, that is sacrosanct to him. It, it is worthy of our respect. You know what? If you've got, you got Genesis, just look at, just look, flip to Genesis 9 because you'll see, you'll say, yeah, but we screwed it up, right? Yeah, we did. I mean, it didn't take long. Relatively speaking, it didn't take long. And these created beings turn and declare themselves independent from God. They, they make 
They, they go their own way and sin poisons their soul as well as their bodies. It's, it becomes permeated throughout both aspects of who we are. We ruined ourselves. And God says, on the day you cross that line and you eject sin, that poison, into this creation of mine, don't do it. He said, don't do it. Because if you do it on that day, you know what he says, you will surely die. There's a death that started on the day. It's a physical death process began on that day. And the spiritual death of separation and, and, and being impure and being unacceptable into God's kingdom in that state started that day. Do you know, though, even though you and I, and we say it all the time around here, you are screwed up and we know it. I'm screwed up, you know it. Okay, look, we're, all, we're, we're really messed up. Even in that state, God has made it very clear, you still contain, you still carry the image of God with you. It is still a wonder. It is still something that is honored by him. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 5, it's talking about why people should not, and we're going to get to this, about the shedding of blood, meaning the taking or the separating of, the, of this nephesh of this life it says this is nine five and as, as f- f- or, and for your lifeblood i will surely demand an account i will demand an accounting from every animal and from each man too i will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for and here's why you're still an image bearer you're still holy to god you still have a do not touch Do not destroy label on us. Even in its fallen state, in the image of God, has God made man. That means we are distinct and superior to all other life. You saw this, I think it was, was it springtime? When a child fell into the pit of Harambe, the gorilla at the Cincinnati Zoo. And there was video taken. And it's it's very, just you can't take your eyes off if you see it. You see this giant gorilla just not sure what to do and 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 it takes the clothing of the child and just drags them around in the pen and people are screaming and they don't not sure what to do and as a result of that they called in people and they shot and killed harambe the gorilla who was a beloved part of the cincinnati zoo there were immediately intense protests that came out that, that said how could they have done this why couldn't they have tranquilized it? why couldn't they have done something why would they put why would they kill he didn't do anything. He didn't ask for this. He was just put in a position and he hadn't hurt the kid and they shot him dead, boom, like that. And in particular, there were protesters who came out who said that there should be justice done. They wanted justice for Harambe. And one of the things they said, and this is one of the clips from one of the statements that said this, we have a dead person on our hands. They wanted people charged with manslaughter or even murder for the killing of Harambe. There are all kinds of arguments that happen. You, you're familiar with this, right? And then everybody finally gathered around and they, and they looked up Jack Hanna, right? Because he's the man. And they said, Jack, you got to speak to this because you love animals and you started this Columbus Zoo and you make a statement. And people were stunned when Jack Hanna said these things. He said he agreed 1,000% with the zoo's decision to put down that gorilla. He said they made the correct decision. Listen to this. Thank goodness a human being is alive today because of the decision that the zoo made. He said, you're dealing with human life or animal life here. So what is the decision? I think it's very simple to figure that out. Now, I don't know Jack Hanna personally. I don't know where he stands with God. I don't know what his values are. 
But this is a guy who's worked with animals, but somehow the guy understands. Now, and, I mean, I'm an animal lover. I love, I love animals. I love dogs. Man, I, you know, I'm just hoping dogs are in heaven. I just, I'll leave that to God, but that would be so cool. And I would like all my dogs that I've had to be able to hang out together and go, man, you can tell, let's tell stories. I don't know how that'll go. But, but, but as an animal lover, Jack Hanna understood something. It is not even a debate. There is a huge difference between the value of an animal who exists a life in the, in the physical world but isn't a spirit soul carrier and a nephesh who is the capstone of all creation. Now, we have a whole lot of people who say, oh, but, you know, animals show so many tendencies. My grandmother, I think I've said this before, my grandmother used to name her dogs human names because she thought they would act more human. So her dog was Bill. You know, we just have Bill. <laughs> Frank and Arnold. Okay. And a whole lot of us will look at things and say, you know what, there's just a small little DNA difference between a human being and a gorilla. And so, you know, evolutionary this and that and all this stuff and you go and you look and they go you know the, you look at them in the cage and you go boy i wonder who's in the zoo and who's that who's visiting they sure look and they'll kind of mimic and they'll do all kinds of things and they'll try to communicate and, and you go you know what that animal you know maybe we are related maybe that animal is pretty much my cousin and then 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 that ape will reach down he'll squat he'll relieve himself He'll grab the pile and he'll start eating it and throwing it. And you'll go, that is my cousin. (laughs) Whatever we think of that, there is a foundational truth that God has established. Fundamental difference. You are at the top of the food chain. You are at the top of the creation order. You are special. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. You just got, you won the lottery. I mean, we won the lottery. We get to be carriers of this element of God with us. We are image bearers of the most high God. We get to be creative. We get to reason. We get to think. We get to choose. And we get to walk around in physical bodies at the same time. We are hybrids in two different worlds. Can I, I'll just throw this in, just a little theological aside. This is why, by the way, the final resurrection is so important to God. People say, well, if you die, you go to heaven. Isn't that fine? Aren't you there forever? No, there's going to be a final resurrection. Your body will be resurrected. It will be purified. It will be rejoined. And you go, what's important to that? It's because God said, I want you to experience forever what I really made you to be in its fullness. Jesus comes to earth. He becomes... God in the flesh, and God experiences what he created us to experience. That is an eternal state for the Son of God. And it's an eternal state for us. The resurrection will make sure that that happens. Now, what that means is that there's a subsequent value given to human life. Every human being is a walking carrier of God's quintessential art. I mean, every single person, you, could you just look around the room? Just look. You see people you recognize, and you see, people, you see all short shapes and sizes, glasses, no glasses, people young and old. You, know, you, you look, but every single person that you lay eyes on, there is something that the, the universe is focused on. That person said, there's another one right there. The wonder of creation is there. 
And there's a value to that. Maybe you get a feeling for that. One time I was traveling abroad and I'd been in a foreign-speaking country for quite a long time, it seemed like. I was in a public place and I heard a, I heard a sound. And it, was, it was coming from like a table over here at a restaurant. And I heard and I look and it's somebody speaking American English. Now if you, I don't know if you're like me, but if you're in other environments where you just, you just kind of get used to being not hearing or seeing your own type, as soon as I heard that, it was like I, I, I lost all protocol. Didn't matter who they were, where they were from. I walked straight over there and go, are you from America? Yeah. And I was like, hey, hey, we're hey. I didn't even know what to say. I'm just like, hey, where are you from? Hey. They could be, they could have been a criminal. They could, they could have, they, they could be people who beat small animals. I, and I was like, I don't care. I'm just celebrating because I get to be around another one of you. Okay, if that doesn't work for you, how about if you're, some of you can't relate to this. If you grow up rooting for a team that is not in the town that you represent, you're used to a sea of red and everybody's saying, answering when you say the two letters and I'm not even going to say, you know. But if you're, if you're not from around there and you're rooting for another team, if you find somebody else who's rooting for your team, you just go, oh, oh, I like you. I'm with you. You will high-five them and hug them if you're in the stands and everybody else is against you, but your team does something right. You have a camaraderie with them. Now, if that one doesn't work for you, imagine that you're a living person in The Walking Dead and you find another living person. (laughs) You cling to them. You value them. You go, oh, another one. God has called us to be people who recognize the fraternity, respect it, and honor it. And it's absolutely insignificant in that realm what color skin they've got, what language is their primary one, what their hygiene standards are, frankly, what their styles are, what annoying idiosyncrasies they may have. They are a nephesh. They are a God gene carrier. And that carries enormous implications because they were created... To be on a path where that part of them will expand and make them glorious beings. Not God, but beings who are, are valued above all. C.S. Lewis, if, you're, if you've ever heard C.S. Lewis, you've probably heard this quote, but I want to give you a little more of it. This is from a, 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 the, the book, The Weight of Glory, and C.S. Lewis is considered one of the finest Christian minds of a, a previous century. and wrote a lot. And he talked about this. He talked about what it be, meant, means to be a nephesh a human life. And this is what he says. It's a serious thing to live in a society of what he's going to call possible gods and goddesses, small g. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only a nightmare. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other, listen to this, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It's in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, this is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them, that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, 
all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. This is a phrase you probably might have heard. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. Their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, it's talking about communion and taking Christ into us, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your, to your senses. And that carries weight to how we look at ourselves and our lives and others and life in general. So there's some implications here. And this is going to come back to our perspective on what's going on in our society where the taking of life has seemed so casual. And I'm not going to give a whole lot of commentary about it, but we have anesthetized our to it even with first-person shooter games and media and movies and televisions where, the, where we say, oh, we're just kidding around. We're just fooling around, just taking life. But God says, in reality, regardless whether that's a pastime of yours, Rule number one, I mean, it is in the top ten. You never take a life unilaterally. You never threaten. You don't even wish it was gone in another carrier of nephesh. Exodus 23 is in the Ten Commandments, and it says very, very simple. You shall not. You shall not. It's not just because it'll make people sad. It is because it is the very essence of God in human form that he's given in his image that we are deciding we can end. And God says, oh, no, no, no. It, the, the first major crime in the Bible is, is the murder of Abel by Cain. He kills his brother, and it's in Genesis chapter 4. And there's this little exchange between Cain and God before... God surely knows it's, he's, he's considering this. And God says some really haunting things to Cain. If you want to look, you can look in, in Genesis chapter 4. Verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? This had to do with their offerings being accepted, and he was angry and jealous of his brother. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right... This is such a vivid picture. Sin is crouching at your door. It's like a wild animal ready to spring and just consume you. It it is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now, what's interesting beyond that is Cain violates God, and he takes the life of his brother. And God shows up and is going, to, is, is going to give Cain what he deserves. And so he tells him, your brother's blood has called out to me from, from the soil, and now as a result, you're exiled. And you'll be a restless wanderer. And Cain says, you're sending me out away from the community. I am, as soon as other, other people get me, they're going to they're gonna kill me. And look, look what God says in verse 15. But the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so no one... No one who found him would kill him. Now, we don't know a whole lot of exactly what that mark is or what what it's about, but what it does say is, even at our worst, God still values this thing. 
he values a life and says, you do not unilaterally take it. Now, very quickly, let me say a note on justice. Because unilaterally means you decide and you act independently. God does have provision in, for how society works. And in community, justice is supposed to be enacted, which even includes war sometimes and includes the penalty of death sometimes. What he's saying here, though, is that that nephesh is not yours to take or yours to even cast aspersions on because of its standing with God. It is God who does that. And that's where the principle then comes of what the Bible talks about, about violence. Where violence is that which we, say, we, we enact on somebody to negate them, to diminish them, to, or even to separate their life. God speaks very, very clearly that over and over and over again. And this is just a sampling of it in Psalms 7, 9. O righteous God who searches minds and hearts, bring to an end the violence of the wicked and make the righteous secure. There's a separation between violent acts and righteousness. Proverbs 3 says, Do not plot harm against your neighbor who lives trustfully near you. Do not uh, envy a violent man or choose any of his ways. For the Lord detests a perverse man, but takes the upright into his, into his confidence. Proverbs goes on to say in 13 too, uh, From the fruit of his lips a man enjoys good things, but the unfaithful have a craving for violence. And 21, 7 and 8, The violence of the wicked will drag them away, for they refuse to do what's right. The way of the guilty is devious, but the conduct of the innocent is upright. This is the spirit with which then Jesus says what he does in the Sermon on the Mount. Because he's going to expand this thing about how you value human life. And he says, referring to the Old Testament law, okay, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, raka, which is a curse kind of phrase, is answerable to Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. In essence, what Jesus is saying is, when you look at each other, there is this nephesh that has been created and we are called on to elevate it, not diminish it. So even if you injure it, even if you, if you turn toward hatred, hatred toward another human being is in essence the same as trying to murder the life of that human being. It's akin to murder. So rule number one is you don't take that life unilaterally. And then right behind it comes this principle. Respect and honor of the nephesh, of the life beings, is what we're called on to, commonly, uh, to, to give when we commonly encounter them. Now, this has an effect, because I, I, most of us in the room would say, okay, good, I haven't murdered anybody. Most of us would probably hopefully say, I haven't murdered anybody, so I'm good, right? No, no. This is, this is a mentality now that permeates how I look at the people around me. When I come to a stop off the freeway ramp and there's somebody holding a sign. When I got coworkers who I just cannot stand another day to be around them. When extended family members have wounded me so deeply that I just can't stand their presence anymore. And there's a call from God that says, they are, they are, they are nephesh. They, re, they still retain that title. How we look at them, how we, how, what we consider those who, how we, cons, how we look at those who we tend to consider lesser than us. Or inferior to us. Oh, you say you know what? You don't think anybody's inferior to you? Don't, don't, don't bring that in here. Of course, there are people you think are inferior to you. 
There are people who I think are inferior to me too. Let's, can we just be honest? In your heart, what do we do with those? How should this affect that? People who are odd or kind of unlikable. And it's, again, it's not just racism. It's based on education levels and beliefs and habits and personality types and their positions. Teenagers, can I tell you, in your high school, this is rampant. This, is, this happens all at, at, in the cafeteria. We can walk into your cafeteria and you see this. You are called on to be different than everybody else that way. To not diminish people based on what group they're hanging out with, what they look like, what's popular, what's not popular. Let me just, I'm going to ask you a blunt question. If Jesus, his figurative language still carries truth to it when he says, when you hate somebody, you kill them. It's attempted murder. Can I ask, who have you killed in your heart? Who have you wished that their life would not be around you or their life possibly would even end? Because we look at them or we just go, They're in my way. They're just in my way. Every single human being that you encounter is so special to God. If you ever played football, organized football, they put a red jersey on people who are either hurt or the quarterback or somebody who they don't want you to hit them. So you put a red jersey and that that means you don't don't tackle that person. You've got to stay away from them. Do you know that when God has us walk around in public, every human being you, you encounter has got, is wearing a red jersey from God. Leave them alone. If God wants to do something with them, He can. But you don't take them down, whether verbally or emotionally or physically in any way. They're wearing a, 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 a red jersey. Jesus said, there's no greater love than this. Now think about this. And He used the word life. That one nephesh would sacrifice their nephesh for another because it's that valuable. It's that holy to God. And that becomes the motive. Uh, I'm going to flip you to the New Testament now for the last few minutes. In John chapter 5, that becomes the motive for the words of Jesus and the actions of Jesus. Try to, if you can take that concept of what Jesus means when he's talking about life, He's not just saying something's living and breathing. He's not just talking about a far off, distant, uh, in the future, eternal life. He's talking about this, this amazing, synergistic combination that God has created that He intended for us to carry forever. Life to Him is, is so valuable. He's talking about that life when He says in John 5.21, Just as a father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives it to whomever he's pleased to give it. Skip down to verse 24. You'll see a little more on this. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes me, uh, him who sent me, they have something. They become a carrier of an eternal nephesh. Eternal life will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, the time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear him will live. They will have life. For as the Father, look at this, has life in himself, so he's granted the son to have life in himself. He's, he's given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. If you flip to chapter 6, you see just a couple other words that I really want you to hear because Jesus is talking about your life and mine. He's not just talking about things in general. He's talking about us, why he came, what he does. 
Verse 35, John 6. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. I will lose none of all that he has given me, but I will raise them up the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. I'll raise him up at the last day. He, Jesus Christ holds life. He's the creator of it. He's the author of it. He's called that. He gives it. He empties all the reserves and he actually sacrificed his own simply so that he could reclaim and re-energize and regenerate the dead one that we caused by our sin. God's all-out radical act was that he sent his own son with the intent and purpose to sacrifice this most holy commodity. And that's why it says in 1 John chapter 5, this, this is a testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life, you know, you can say all you want about all the, all the religions point to the same thing, and they all, they don't. There is one. You're going to hear this next week and in the weeks to come. There is one source of this nephesh. There's one in the universe. There's one source of it being restored. This life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. Can he say it any more clearly? I, have, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life so that you may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, even in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God, and he is. Look, he is the true God, and he is eternal life. When you walk out of here today, you're going to drive next to people who are going to cut you off. You're going to hear annoying things from people tomorrow at work. You're going to go to school with people who you drive you crazy. There are going to be people you in your own family sometimes who you wish, you wish they'd just leave you alone. But God says, honor that life. And the best way you can do that is not just to, to, reserve, to reduce hatred or discrimination, but it is to go to the source of life and say, have yours restored. I'm going to come right out and ask you today, do you have eternal life? You were given the gift of life. It was sacrificed and death entered into you. You are Dead without Jesus Christ, the author of that life, regenerating it. He did everything that's necessary to do that. He's not asking you to earn it. He's not asking you to get baptized to do it, although he would love for you to do that. He he is not asking you to try to reform your ways. He is simply saying, bring your dead life back to the source of life. And by believing in what he did on the cross, when he gave his own life on behalf of yours, allow him, invite him, receive him to give you eternal life. I'm going to close my talk today simply by saying a prayer. And if you, you might have heard this a hundred times. You may have never heard it before. But if you're in a place where you're not sure that that life that he gave you and intends for you to have for eternity has been reborn by faith in his son, I invite you to turn directly to him in your heart. Call out to him and all, just, just put your faith in him. Transfer it to him. And he will give you the gift of an eternal life. Would you bow with me?